Thank you, Betsy. It's uh, wonderful to be here among uh, so many friends, old friends and, uh, and new friends here. It's a little intimidating speaking to you all. Uh, Art Sasahiro, who's sitting here, uh, gave me my first job at the Brigham and the West Roxbury VA, and Marshall took care of me. I was his patient for a very long time, so speaking to this group is a little bit intimidating, but I'll get over it. Um, this is a serious uh, subject, a very serious subject. It has major, important societal implications. I'll tell you at the, at the start here what I hope to accomplish in this uh, roughly half an hour that we have together. I want to teach you some, uh, some neurology and neuroscience. You need to understand these things, these concepts, in order to understand what's going on in the world today, what we can do about this problem, pain and suffering. Uh, you're going to learn about uh, the differences among nociception, I'll define that for you in a minute, uh, pain and suffering. And you're going to learn about some important concepts about how the nervous system works, including something called tachyphylaxis, tolerance and withdrawal, and addiction. And in the end, I'd like to uh, summarize with some ideas about what, at least I think, is the essential problem that we're facing with regard to the opioid epidemic and uh, all of the tragedies that have been associated with it. So that's what I'm going to do, and it, it's a lot. In 30 minutes, I would have to depend on you all being pretty sophisticated people, or I wouldn't be able to do this. Uh, we're going to start with an experiment, as Betsy uh, said. You have uh, ice water on your table. I, before you do anything, let me tell you what the experiment is. I'm going to ask you to take uh, one finger, forefinger, either hand, and put it in the ice. Don't, don't do it yet. Put your finger in there and put it right next to some ice cubes. And then what I'd like you to do is, uh, when you begin to notice something unpleasant, raise your other hand. And uh, don't take your finger out of the ice, because after a number of people raise their hands, I'm going to ask you to do something else. So are you ready to go? Here we go. Everybody ready? Put your finger in the ice. And when you begin to notice an unpleasant sensation, raise your hand. And look around, but don't take your finger out of the ice. Nice and high so everybody can see you. Try not to take your fingers out of those, out of the ice cubes, even though the uh, discomfort is getting uh, getting greater. And then, um, as you, the majority of people have their hands up now, if we were to wait a little bit longer, as you can see, we'll have everybody's hands up. I want you to notice. Uh, I want you to wonder, those who are having that discomfort now, is it getting a little bit less, even though you haven't taken your hand out of the ice? And if it is, put your hands down. Right. Good. That's the end of the experiment. You can take your fingers out of the ice cubes. So what have you just? Uh, what have you just demonstrated? 
So here are the three concepts I'd like you to understand clearly before, before we talk about the clinical aspects of it. We just tested something called nociception. Nociception is from uh, a Greek root which means noxious. And I'm going to define noxious as something which is potentially tissue damaging, like a pin or a knife uh, or a very hot temperature or a very cold temperature. We used uh, the least noxious of these, the cold, as our experiment today. But these are potentially tissue damaging stimuli. Organisms need to recognize when there's something noxious in the environment. This phenomenon is called nociception, the ability to recognize something which is potentially tissue damaging. It's preserved across almost all species. In fact, there are organisms that don't even have a brain. Aplysia, the sea slug. Uh, it doesn't have a brain. All it has is, is some neurons and ganglia, little, little clumps of neurons. It has nociception. If you touch it with something cold or hot, it will move away without a brain. Uh, nociception is critical for survival. And a lot of the important experiments were do done by Eric Kandel, whose name you might recognize, the great neuroscientist from New York City, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on aplysia and nociception. Now, how do we control nociception? You noticed, many of you, that even though you didn't take your finger out of the ice, it began to improve. You also probably noticed, I hope you noticed, that uh, almost immediately some people, a few people, uh, were, were suffering an unpleasant sensation from that ice, and then more people, and then more, and more, and finally virtually everybody, uh, just a few at the end, straggling and putting their hands up. What, what we described there is a bell-shaped curve. A few, and then most, and then a few at the other end of that bell-shaped curve. Almost all biological processes that we can measure, like people's height or people's weight, will fall into a bell-shaped curve like that. You notice the difference in this population of people here. Some people immediately felt, or almost immediately felt, an, an unpleasant sensation. Other people, it took longer, and other people, longer still. That unpleasant sensation that you experienced as a result of the nociception is called pain. Pain requires a central nervous system, a brain. We, we don't think, although we can't prove, that aplysia, even though it has no susception, probably does not have pain. We can't prove that, of course, but we believe that's the case. And, but what was it that controlled the no susception? Even though you still had your finger in the ice, and it was the same temperature as it was a moment before, it was beginning to bother you less. And that's because we have evolved, our brains have evolved a method to turn the nociception system off on, our, on its own. That's a system that arises in the brain and ends up in the organs. In this case, it's the skin of your fingertip that we were looking at here. And uh, a chemical is generated in the central nervous system that mediates this. What chemical do you think that is? Take a guess. It's an opioid. They're called encephalins. They're tiny little small molecules. And they're preserved across multitudes of animals and plants actually have these opioids. Encephalins and endorphins, they're called the natural ones. Any opioid which is made by us, we call endogenous opioids. Any chemical like this that we get from the outside world, from plants 
or from pharmaceutical developments. We would call exogenous opioids. It's absolutely critical that we have these opioids, because if we didn't, that pain that you suffered would never go away. And yet it did go away, didn't it? Even though the stimulus disappeared. Very important for survival. This um, mechanism of nociception generating pain is absolutely critical to our survival. There is a human disease which uh, is an infection and damages the nerves that carry nociception. What is that disease? It's, it's leprosy. Uh, leprosy is an infection that damages these, these nerves. All of the disfiguration of people with leprosy is due entirely to the disappearance of nociception and pain. I tell you this because it's important to recognize that we must have nociception and pain, and we must have opioids. Opioids are the substance which the nervous system uses to control this phenomenon. Without it, we would be disabled with chronic disabling pain. And then finally, the third concept is the concept of suffering. Suffering is pain, hardship, or distress. Notice that pain is only one of the causes of suffering. There are many other causes. Can you, can you name a few? What, what else causes suffering other than pain? Patriot's loss, emotional, <laughs> emotional pain. Uh, let's be, it, it, that's, that's true, but let's be serious about it and think for a moment. War, poverty, marital discord, illness, uh, mental illness, anxiety, depression. Uh, all of these cause suffering, don't they? Enormous suffering, but they're not due to pain which in turn is due to nociception. You see, it's a cascade. Nociception, pain, and suffering. When we uh, doctors uh, took our oath, whether it was the Hippocratic Oath or the Mamadadean oath, oath or any oath around the world, we promised that we would relieve suffering. All of us in every language, relieve suffering. That's our job. We did not promise to obliterate nociception and pain. Because if we were to, we would turn the whole population into people with leprosy. No nociception and pain. Horribly damaged. I want you to understand the difference here because now we're going to talk about the actual disorders, the clinical features of these disorders. And you can see how important it is for society in general and for the medical profession to understand the differences among these important concepts which have a neurobiological basis. So this is not made up. This is how the nervous system actually, actually works. So let me give you three definitions, and then we'll come to a conclusion. And I'd like to have time for questions and comments and interactions, if we can. Tachyphylaxis means that it takes an increasing dose of a drug. And after a certain dose, taking more of the drug has no additional benefit. A very good example of this uh, is amphetamine. The street drug, methamphetamine, is, a, uh, is an ex example of this. And the reason this is the case is these drugs cause the release of a substance we call a neurotransmitter. And there's only so much neurotransmitter to release. Once the neurons are finished releasing it, taking more drug doesn't help. You get no additional effect. That's known as tachyphylaxis. Tolerance 
means that you need to take increasing doses of the, of the drug to have the same effect. And this can go on forever to enormous doses. This is because the receptors in the body that are meant to see these neurotransmitters become insensitive to it. So you have to add more and more and more to get the same effect. Can you name some drugs, common drugs, that are characterized by tolerance? You have to take more and more of the drug to get the same effect. By category, what would be the most common of these drugs? Tylenol and aspirin? Right, they, they produce something a little different that we can talk about later. Alcohol, of course, is the, is the prototype here. Alcohol is a very, very important one. Probably causes more disability than any of the others. Opioids, another example, of course. Benzodiazepines, the sedative drugs that people use for anxiety, anxiolytic drugs, are another example of this. And any, any drug, any substance that causes tolerance will lead to withdrawal if you stop or reduce the drug levels. And that withdrawal is a physical kind of withdrawal where people get their heart rate goes up, they sweat, their pupils dilate. They have a physical response to reducing the dose of a drug if it causes tolerance. Alcohol, benzodiazepines, opiates would be very good examples. And the final concept that you need to understand is the concept of addiction. Because the term is used very loosely in society in general. And I think you need to understand what it means. Addiction means that there is a, a craving, an obsession, a thought that one cannot get out of one's mind. And that can lead to, to dangerous behaviors, even self-destructive behaviors, in order to obtain the substance. Now, you, before you say, well, you know, there are very few people who have this kind of obsession, Think for a moment about the concept of obsession. Obsession is a thought that sometimes leads to an action. The action is called a compulsion. A compulsion, And by doing the action, you relieve the obsession, but only temporarily. And then it creeps back into your mind again. Uh, how many of you here know what the term earworm means? How many of you know it? A few of you know what it is. This is when a, a little a piece of music, a song, or something of that type gets into your head and it keeps playing over and over and over again. How many of you have experienced that? Yes, yeah, so you've all of you experienced the phenomenon of an obsession, an unwanted thought that keeps working its way around in your head over and over and over again. Again, it would be a bell-shaped curve. Some of you would have very little of this, some average. Some of you would have a great deal of this. Sometimes it's relieved uh, by a movement. I was at the symphony the other night, saw the Mahler's first symphony, one of my favorite pieces, and for hours afterwards, I couldn't get the uh, Frere Jacques uh, third movement uh, out of my head. Da, 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 over and over and over it would go. Huh? Now, that's not, that's not a bad one. Uh, that's a good one. But I was very interested in the symphony because when you're sitting in the symphony, you can watch this happen. As the soft movement comes to a close, it becomes absolutely still in symphony hall because everybody is controlling these unwanted thoughts and movements that relieve the unwanted thoughts. I mustn't cough. I mustn't clear my throat. And you overcome it. And then the conductor drops his hands. Nelson drops his hands. And you hear it in the audience. <coughs> 
Those are the compulsions. Obsessive, compulsive. So we all have a touch of it. The chemical that mediates this in the brain is, is different than the one that the opioids use. It's called dopamine. Dopamine is responsible for the good feelings we get uh, when we have a happy event of some type, a physical or emotional happy event, like the Patriots winning. Huh? That's dopamine release. And uh, that dopamine release can lead to obsessions, more and more of it. When we treat Parkinson's disease by giving people dopamine because they're depleted in dopamine, they often develop new obsessions that they never had before. Obsessions and compulsions, like addiction, are not limited to drugs. What other kinds of addictions can you think of? There's sex addictions. There's smoking addictions. There's gambling addictions. And in fact, all of these will come out in people who are given dopamine for the treatment of Parkinson's disease. So, so opioid addiction is actually just one piece of a complex interaction between nociception, pain and suffering, and obsession and compulsions that are happening in the neurobiology of the brain. So what is the essential problem then? As I, as I see it, the essential problem we have is that we as a society, including uh, us doctors, medical people, have forgotten the differences among these different important concepts. And we are treating suffering as if it were pain from nociception. In fact, it's not most of the time, is it? It's, it's war and poverty and marital discord and depression and anxiety. But our society has come to believe that medications, the drugs, the pharmaceuticals, are the answer to all of our ills, including suffering from all these other causes. And as a result of that, we have become addicted as a society, addicted to the use of pharmaceuticals to treat suffering which is not related to pain caused by nociception. And you can see the results. Eh? So now we have a, a massive epidemic. It's really a worldwide epidemic, very severe here in North America, as you're all aware. Because of the fact that these medications, although marvelous and critical for our survival, are being used for the wrong indication. It's, easy, it's easier, isn't it, to, uh, to write a prescription for something or to buy it on the street than it is to deal with the very naughty and very complex problems that underlie real, real suffering. And yet, that is what we promise to do as doctors, relieve suffering. That's what we need to do. So we need to step back and get away from the idea that medications, drugs, the, the pharmaceutical companies are the answer to all of our ills in society. They are not. And what we're seeing here is the symptomatology that comes from this. So let me summarize what I've told you in the last 20 minutes or so, and I, I hope we have a, a little time to interact with each other. Uh, nociception and pain are not enemies. Opioids are not enemies. They are made in our brains and are absolutely critical. Uh, suffering is due to a lot of things other than nociception and pain, and we need to address those directly in manners which are different than just giving a drug that blocks the opioid or acts on the opioid receptor in the brain. Uh, 
addiction is a, is a piece of a puzzle which is really part of the obsessive-compulsive phenomenon, all of which, we, all, and all of us suffer some minor degree of this, as you just have found out with your own experimentation. So I hope that you realize that the answer to this problem is not going to come from a simple medication of some sort which will block certain receptors and not block other receptors. The answer is going to be much more complex than that. I'd like to take uh, comments, questions, remarks from, from the group before we, before we stop, and I think we have enough time. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you probably, she said that uh, her pain didn't decrease. I was saying that if you wait long enough, yeah, it would have probably happened had, it, had, it, had we gone on long enough. I didn't have time to do a 20-minute experiment. But uh, yes, it, it would decrease. And the, the, the reason for that is that you yourself generate these opioids. They're your own opioids, endogenous opioids. I wanted to point out to you that, uh, that these uh, chemicals are in all of us and very critical to our survival. That the, the chemicals themselves are not the enemy. I think that's a very, very important concept. But I think you would have experienced that. You can try it at home tonight. <laughs> See how long it takes. Yes, yes, Dr. Fried. Who uh, have a profit motive, uh, you know, to see that their medications are used and so on, and uh, you know, I think that it has a great effect on, you know, the world in general. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, Dr. Friedkin says that uh, that I have neglected to talk about the pharmaceutical companies and their role. I did mention it, actually. I did mention pharmaceutical companies, I think, twice, in, in, just to defend myself, Dr. Freakin. <laughs> Dr. Freakin and I were discussing neuroscience and, and physics and artificial intelligence over, over lunch. Um, and um, he's an, a, a distinguished expert in, in artificial intelligence and, uh, and now a physicist. Uh, the, the industry is part of it. You're, you're, you're right, of course. Um, the, uh, the uh, opioids that are made artificially, not naturally in the environment, are many, many times more potent than the, uh, than the, than the ones we buy, that, that you can find in nature. Do you remember the scene in um, The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy and her friends uh, see the uh, Emerald City in the distance, and there's a giant field of poppies, uh, and they gradually become drowsy and go to sleep? Now, that's the problem with it, isn't it? Because the, the drugs are meant, including the natural drug, is meant to relieve nociception, to, to reverse nociception. But, it, but they have side effects, because these receptors for these opioids are all over the brain. So people become drowsy, their heart rate changes, their blood pressure drops, and that's why we have these, uh, these fatalities. And if you take a substance, which is a thousand times more potent per milligram. So fentanyl, which was an artificially created opioid, which doesn't exist in nature, thousand times more potent, that means the safety zone between the therapeutic effect 
and the toxic effect is very, very narrow. And uh, that, that's why we're having such a catastrophe with these drugs. So yes, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are responsible for, for creating these very potent opioids. But I can tell you as a neurologist, these things have their place in actual medicine. Uh, what would be a good example of where opioids would be indicated, now that you're all neuroscientists? Well, I think uh, Marshall Moriarty could tell us. Because a fractured long bone is a sign of too much nociception. There isn't enough opioid released in your own brain to deal with it. I'm sure all of you have had a, either a broken limb or a bad sprained ankle or something like this, right? There, your own endogenous opioids just aren't enough. Right? It would it be inhumane to put a person in the hospital with a fractured femur, that's the big bone of the thigh, and say, well, let your own opioids take care of it. It'll be all right. right? We, we want to use a more potent opioid. So we use codeine or morphine and now fentanyl because, because it's so powerful. You see, we can relieve. That's a perfectly rational and reasonable indication, isn't it? And it, actually, there are no data that indicate that people who use opioids for that kind of problem, too much nociception to be dealt with endogenously, do not have an increased risk of addiction if they're using it for that indication. But if they're using it to treat suffering and angst, then they are at risk for, for the, uh, the, the real problem of addiction. So to, to get to back to your question, yes, they're partly responsible, but we, have, we as a society have asked for these potent opioids, right? It, it isn't, I don't think it's the pharmaceutical company's, quote, fault that we are misusing all of them. And we are misusing them. We're using them to treat the wrong indication, that's for sure. Yes? Is there, Is there anything happening with Parkinson's disease to bring women onto a different subject here? Yes, we're curing it. We're trying to. Yes, we have a number of wonderful people who are working both in the basic science uh, of Parkinson's disease and related diseases that we call Parkinsonism, and the clinical science using new drugs, using surgeries, stimulating the brain, and even implanting brain, brain transplants. You heard Betsy say we, we invented transplantation at the Brigham. Joe Murray and his colleagues did. It's time for brain transplantation as well, putting nervous tissue into people and curing their diseases. So yes, we're on, the, we're on the road. Parkinson's, ALS, Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, we're, we're on the road. It's a long road. It's a long road, but we, there's been progress, yes. Yes, sir. The ethics of the pharmaceutical companies when I broke in to pharmacy were quite different than they are now. Now they're nothing but money makers. I looked up the price of Narcan last night. Does anybody know in this room what the price is? I know what the price is. It's over a, close to two hundred dollars for a single for a single dose. For a single dose. He's talking about naloxone, which is the uh, inhibitor. Right. And this is unforgivable when epinephrine is six seven hundred dollars. These are things that I think the medical profession should speak out on and speak more because the journals I read, the articles I read coming out of the medical profession, I'm not reading these articles. I'm seeing everything on television 
to offset the side effects of the opiate. Yeah, you're a, you're a pharmacist yourself. Yes, I am. Yeah, my uh, my parents, grand, my grandparents were all pharmacists. That's how I got interested in the medicine. My grandfather and all of his siblings, all of them were pharmacists. I think there were seven of them, uh, living in New Rochelle, New York, um, and do, uh, ran a pharmacy. So I'm very very. Uh, close to the field of pharmacy. It's very important, and pharmaceuticals. Uh, the medical profession has been trying to speak out. Uh, some of our leaders in some of our most eminent and most respected organizations have spoken out. Uh, the American College of Physicians, which is the organization that speaks for the internists, has been very good about this, and uh, some of the leadership has been very positive. The, our organization, the American Academy of Neurology and the American Neurological Association, they have been. And speaking out against other things like head trauma, for example, and boxing, and all of these, these are public health problems. But it is difficult to, uh, to battle uh, Sanofi or uh, Bristol Myers Squibb and so on. I, I do think we have to work with them to bring, the, bring them around to sort of understand the meaning of this. And not everybody in this industry is evil. Right? Again, so I think that would be overly simplified. But you're right, these are too expensive. What does an EpiPen cost now? Six or $700 to keep you from getting a, my wife has, uh, has bee sting allergies, so we've got a couple of these EpiPens around. You have to mortgage the house to get a, an EpiPen in the house. Yes, sir, right there. They're gonna stop me in a second, but go ahead. I'd like to go back to your uh, old uh, experiment and sort of ask, when I go outside and it's freezing cold outside, I, I'm, my, my nerves do work. I know it's freezing cold. But I know that if I spend a little bit of time outside, I will acclimate myself to it and everything's going to be just fine. Uh, why do other people maybe not acclimate as quickly as I do or say, holy cow, I have to move to Florida because I can't take this. Right, anymore. right. So why is the response? Well, you know, I think you saw that was the reason I did the experiment at the beginning. I wanted you to see the variation in a normal population of people. We just take a, a, an ordinary population of people and you say, how long does it take for a nociceptive stimulus, which is roughly the same for everybody, to cause pain? And did you see uh, some people immediately, some, uh, it's, uh, it turns out that about 65%, about two-thirds of people, will have it happen within what are called one standard deviation from the mean. So if the, if the average would be uh, a minute, 65% uh, of the people would, ha would have it between 50 seconds and, and a minute and 15 seconds, something like that. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the way biology works. Presumably, to, to get at the details of that. There's a genetic predisposition for this. It probably runs in families. And then there are epigenetic. There's adaptations and, uh, quote, getting used to it. What you're saying when you're getting used to it is that your own endogenous opiate, you are experiencing enkephalins and endorphins. And some people are more capable than others of experiencing. Not, it's not a matter of good and bad, just the way it is. Betsy, one more. And I'll stay around afterwards. We can hang around out here in the bar and talk about this for a few hours. <laughs> yeah. Doctors, what's, what's the relationship between dreams and suffering? Is one a cause or one an effect of the other? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question. Dreaming is, uh, is part of normal sleep. As, as we all know, it occurs during a certain part of sleep called REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. 
And, uh, and all uh, organisms with the complex brains have, have uh, sleeping. My, my dogs, Ralphie and Sydney, uh, definitely have dreaming. I mean, I know they're having dreaming because I can see the rapid eye movements, and uh, you can see their legs move, and they go, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> it's a squirrel, it's a squirrel. And um, what I do, you see, is I uh, anthropomorphize them and say they must be thinking about chasing squirrels or something like this. <laughs> and I think a lot of this has to, is similar with our, our dreaming. It's been a big controversy, as you know, uh, ever since the sort of Freudian uh, influence that uh, the dreams had great deep meaning. Other people think that they don't. Uh, I have a, a, an intermediate view. I think that dreams are biological. They fall into a very small number of categories, mostly motor things, jumping, falling. Have you all felt falling? Falling is a very common one. And then in the morning, depending on your psychological state, you make an interpretation of what that meant. All it was was falling, but the next day you say, I was being pushed out the window <laughs> by that evil boss of mine. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you.